0: Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see so many of you here. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that God has brought you here to worship with us. If you don't know who I am, my name's Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. Having said that, I'd like to draw your attention now to the Word of the Lord as we find it in the 51st Psalm, Psalm 51. We'll be looking at this psalm in its entirety, all 19 verses. Yes, it can be done. And I'll be reading this psalm in its entirety, but before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God, preserved for us, sovereignly, graciously, lovingly by him, so that we might hear it and be changed by it this morning. And so may we attend to it as his word. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, And take not the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would offer it. I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We thank you for your word, which we just heard read. And we acknowledge that your word teaches us that the only way we can keep our way pure before you is by guarding it according to your word. And so we pray that you would empower us to seek you with our whole heart. Let us not wander from your commandments, but instead may we store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. For you are blessed, Lord. Teach us your statutes, so that with our lips we might declare all the rules of your mouth, and we may delight in the way of your testimonies, as much as in all riches. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's a sad reality, but it's true that even as Christians, even as those who have been saved by God's grace, remade in the image of Christ, restored to fellowship and communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's still true that even though we're in that state, we still sin, don't we? And none of us rejoice in that reality. None of us love that reality. As a matter of fact, we hate it, don't we? We despise it, and we can't wait for Jesus to come back. So that will no longer be a reality in our lives. But the reality is it's true. And so we have to deal with it. And the way that God has commanded us to deal with our sin is by repenting of it. And so what that tells us then is that repentance is not simply something that we engage in at the front end of the Christian life. And then we don't participate in that the rest of our Christian life. No, that tells us that we are to be in a constant, continual state of repentance before God. Because we're constantly in need of repentance for the sins that we daily add To that record against God. This is exactly why Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so repentance is the stuff of the Christian life. It's something that we're to participate in regularly. But that brings up a question for us then. When we're repenting or when we see someone else repenting, how are we to know if that repentance is actually genuine, is actually true, and is not false repentance? In other words, how are we to tell the difference between repentance that God has actually wrought in somebody's heart by his gracious working, or if it's just simply repentance that they have drummed up in their own human strength? And it's a very important question to ask because Paul actually hits on the distinction between these two different kinds of repentances, genuine repentance and counterfeit repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. On the one hand, he talks about genuine or godly repentance or grief That produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's the kind of repentance that God graciously works in the hearts and lives of his people. But then on the other hand, he talks about a worldly sorrow or grief. That kind of has similarities as far as it looks to genuine repentance. But it's a counterfeit that produces not true repentance and not life, but rather death. And so here's the thing, it's very important that we are able to distinguish between these two. And that's why I'm so thankful for Psalm 51. Because in Psalm 51, what we have is a record penned by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he is repenting of that horrific sin that he committed and then tried to cover with Bathsheba. And what we see here is true Godly repentance, that God worked in David's heart. And so what we're going to see in the text this morning is three marks or signs of true godly repentance. Three marks or signs of true repentance that God works in his people. First of all, we'll see that we know that we're participating in true repentance by God's grace when we confess our guilt. We'll see that in verses 1 through 6. But David, having tried to cover his sin, we'll see, now sees that the biggest problem is not the consequences of his sin, but the nature of his sin against a holy and infinite God. And so we can know that we're truly repentant when we confess the guilt of our sin in that way. That's the first sign or mark. The second sign or mark of true repentance, found in verses 7 through 12, is when we plead God's mercy. God's mercy. When we understand the nature of our sin and that it's infinite in nature because it's against an infinite God, then the only place that we can run for a remedy or a solution is God himself and his grace. And so we can know that we're truly repenting when we look to God for grace to cover the guilt of our sin. And then thirdly, finally, the third mark of true repentance is that we then obey in gratitude. We'll see that in verses 13 through 19, that the response to God's grace, having covered our guilt, is that we want to obey out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for his kindnesses towards us. And so, brothers and sisters, I pray that as we look at this psalm, that our hearts will rejoice even as we're able to distinguish between true repentance and false repentance, because the sad reality is, brothers and sisters, that even as those who are saved, we don't just participate in sin, but we participate in the specific sin of false repentance. And so as believers, we need to repent of our false repentance. And here's the thing, when we see that happening in us, God-working true repentance, we should fall on our faces in gratitude and rejoice. Because repentance is not something to be taken for granted. It's a gracious work of God, a fruit of true saving faith that he works in the hearts and lives of all of his people. And so may he use his word to that effect in our hearts this morning. Let's look first then at this first mark of true repentance, how we confess Our guilt. And we'll begin there by looking at the superscript. We read to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, if you don't remember the context here in which David experiences this true repentance and then pens this psalm, I encourage you later on today to go back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and go read that account. But to give you a thumbnail scratch of what we find there, David sleeps with another man's wife, Bathsheba. Uriah is a soldier in Israel's army. He's out fighting, which is what David should have done. Instead of doing that, he lays with Bathsheba and she then tells him, hey, I'm pregnant. And we see in 2 Samuel 11, David tries to clean up his own mess, doesn't he? He tries to cover up the consequences of his sins so that nobody else finds it out. And he's thwarted again and again until finally, what does he do? He commits murder to cover up his adultery. He's the commander of Israel's army and he says, have Uriah brought to the very forefront of the fighting and where it's most intense and then have everybody pull back but him and he's cut down. And this is David trying to cover up his sin. But then if you go forward to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we remember what happens. The Lord sends his prophet Nathan to share this little story with David, right? About the poor man who has this one lamb that he loves, feeds the thing, sleeps with the thing. He just loves it. And then there's also a rich man who has many lambs. And he has guests that come over, and he's like, You know, I need to slaughter a lamb for you guys. So he takes the lamb from the poor man, the one lamb that he has, and he slaughters it for his guests. And David says, That man needs to be put to death. And how does Nathan respond? You're the man, you're the one who's done this. And in that moment, the Lord uses his word by the Spirit and works true repentance in the heart of King David. And then he takes up his pen and he writes down this psalm. And here's what he says as he begins to confess his guilt. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I love that David starts here because what this relays to us is that we will not approach the Lord in true repentance if we don't first have true saving faith. Because notice what David is saying here. He's saying, Lord, I'm coming to you in repentance, confessing my guilt because I believe by grace through faith that you are who you say you are. And who does the Lord say that he is? Russell read it this morning, From Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. He's steadfast in loving kindness. He's abundant in mercy. He forgives iniquities and transgressions and sins. And so David says, I know who you are. I know the weight and the burden of my sin and my guilt before you. And you are the only one who can do anything about it. And so I fly to you. Don't forgive me because of the genuineness. Of my sorrow. No, no, no. But according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, there's no way that I can earn this forgiveness from you. It must be purely out of your sheer grace and kindness and goodness. And so do you see that, brothers and sisters, repentance is a fruit of true saving faith, of looking to the Lord and believing that he is gracious. And that he can deal with our sin. And so we must start there. Not covering our sin, but exposing it and saying, Lord, here's how awful it is. You are the only one who can deal with it. And I know that you will. So having cried out to his merciful God, David then continues to confess his guilt. Look at verse three with me. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Notice how he says, they're my transgressions. They're my sins. I don't come to you, Lord, with any excuses in my hands. They're my fault. I take full responsibility. And you know exactly what his experience here is like, don't you? You ever do something that's wrong and you try to convince yourself, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but you know that it is. And so your sin is just dogging you. You Can't distract yourself from it. Maybe it robs you of some sleep. And no matter what you do, it's like, there's my sin. There's my sin. It's before me. It's ever before me. I'm aware of what I've done. I can't get away from it. And brothers and sisters, if the Lord is doing that to you this morning, as you sit under the teaching of his word, rejoice and be glad and repent. Because he is at work in you to convict you to the end that you might repent. And so David says, this is my experience, that I just can't get away from my sin. The Lord's convicting him. And the reason that his guilt won't leave him alone is because he understands the gravity of his sin. Look at verse four, because we see that there. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now let me just make sure that you don't misunderstand what David's saying here. David is in no way, shape, or form trying to absolve himself of the pain and the offenses that he has afflicted on Bathsheba and Uriah and Israel as a whole, and the child that would be produced as a result of this illicit union with Bathsheba, who would eventually die, he's not trying to minimize or downplay any of that. Instead, what he's saying is, Lord, what makes even that so horrific, this sin against another image bearer of God, is that it's ultimately against you, the one who bears your image. It's against you and you alone. And so David understands that his sin is wicked and evil. It is cosmic treason. There's no room for David to downplay the gravity of it. Oh, how easily we do that, don't we? We downplay our sin. It's not that big of a deal. I've never done that before. I'll just keep going, in this. it's not that big of a deal. No, it is cosmic treason against your infinite holy creator and redeemer who would send the promised messiah from david's standpoint to come and do everything necessary for his salvation the merits of which are already applied to david by grace through faith and this is how he treats that god Nathan tells David that you have dismissed or disregarded the word of God. And by doing so, you've disregarded or dismissed him. And so what David is saying is, I understand that my sin is great because it's against a great God. It's an infinite offense because it's against an infinite God. And so brothers and sisters, this is our greatest problem. And boys and girls, children, I want to address you specifically for a moment because I remember my days as a child. (laughs) And I remember how frequently I would lie to my parents or lie to authority figures around me to cover up my sin. And here's what I want you to hear. You can deceive your parents so that maybe you convince them that the other sibling did this and not you. Or that I don't know how this mess happened. I don't know how the TV got turned on when you told me not to. Maybe it's that Siri thing or whatever that when you, Alexa, when you talk to it. No, no, no. And here's the thing. You may get away with it from the authority figures over you, but you don't get away with it for one moment before God. He sees all, he's everywhere, and he knows exactly when you sin. And one of those sins being disobeying your parents. And adults, that applies just as much to us. Nobody ultimately gets away with anything. And it's not just because there's cameras everywhere these days. It's because God sees all. And so every sin that we commit. Every offense. He knows about. And it's against him. And so David says. This is why my sin is so horrific. This is why I must confess it. I see it now for what it is. And I love what William Plummer in his commentary on Psalm 51, says about this verse in particular, he says, we never see sin aright until we see it as against God. And David is saying, Lord, that's exactly what I see. I'm confessing my guilt because the reality is it's an infinite offense against an infinite God. Now, David doesn't just confess the nature of his sin and how ugly and wicked that is. He then goes on to say, I know what the origin and source of my sin is, and that's even uglier. So we see that in verse five. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I don't want you to mishear this verse, because what do we say in our culture? Well, hopefully you don't say this, but what does our culture say? Oh, well, I was born that way. That's just who I am. That's why I do these things yeah, but they're wrong. No, that's not what David's saying here. He's not saying, Lord, I'm not responsible for my sin because I was born that way. No, what he's saying is, Lord, this is just one horrific instance of how my entire being is in rebellion against you. Is directed against you. My entire person, body, and soul, the entirety of all my faculties, since I was conceived in the womb, has been against you and in rebellion against you. You see, David is affirming that doctrine that historians throughout church history have affirmed original sin. And original sin is not the first sin that was ever committed. That's not what it's talking about directly. It's talking about the results for the rest of humanity as a result of that first sin. And so what happens in original sin is the guilt of Adam for that sin in disobeying God in the garden, eating the fruit that they were commanded not to, is imputed to us from conception, from the womb. And as the Lord knits our parts together in our mother's womb in conception, each one of our faculties of soul are marred by sin. So that they're directly opposed to God and his word and his law. So that we come out of the womb sinning. We're sinners by nature. Russ prayed this morning and by choice or by practice or by habit. Because in our minds and in our wills and in our passions, they are marred by sin. We are corrupted from conception. And so David says, that's the source of all of this. That's how corrupt and wicked and vile I am, O Lord. He's not holding back at all. He's not sugarcoating any of this. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is one of the marks of true repentance that we say about our sin and ourself exactly what God does in his word. And you see, David acknowledges that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the way that God created man in the garden before the fall. We see that in verse 6. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Why did God create us? To worship him, to glorify him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And yet ever since the fall from conception, man does not do that. And David says, behold, Lord, my sin. Behold it in all of its ugliness. I see it now for what it is. I tried to downplay it, but now you have opened my eyes in true repentance, to see my guilt. And so here's the question then, brothers and sisters. Do you see your sin as your greatest problem? I'm not saying that we don't have other problems in this fallen world. But do you understand that the greatest problem that you have is your sin? Because in committing your sins, And in being fallen and sinful to your very core as you are. That sin against an infinite holy God incurs an infinite debt that you can never repay. Because you're finite. So what resources do you have at your disposal? Finite resources. And so we stand before God, owing him an infinite debt that we can never repay. And yet, sinfully, we respond in all the wrong ways, don't we, oftentimes. One of the first things that we often do is, "Ah, I'm not that bad. Come on, David. And you know what? I've certainly never committed sins like David has. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered somebody. I'm not that bad. And so we downplay our sin. And we lie in God's face. We say that he's not right in his words and blameless in his judgment. David here says, Lord, I'm not going to argue against your judgments one bit. I acknowledge that they're right. That's what he says in the second half of verse four. And yet, when we say our sin's not that big of a deal, we're saying his judgments aren't right. Or maybe you're one of those folks who says, oh, I know how sinful I am. I readily acknowledge that it's an infinite offense against an infinite God. But you know what? I can clean up my act. I can put myself back together. And I see this all the time. I see it in my own heart so that I have to repent of it. Lord, I'll do better next time. What? That's a good result of true repentance, but that can't pay the debt. Or maybe you're one of those folks who says, yes, I acknowledge my guilt, but there's no hope for me. And so you just despair. Our fleshly response to seeing our sin is to either downplay it in our pride or to just despair and think that there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. And neither one of those are the right responses. The right response is that we should despair that we can do anything about our sin, acknowledging that it's an infinite offense against an infinite God. And then we look to him in grace. So the first mark of true repentance is that we Confess our guilt, that it's against God and God only, and we can't pay that debt back. And then second of all, we plead his grace. We plead his grace. And that's what we see David doing, not just in verses 7 through 12, by the way, but actually in verses 1 and 2. We see that that's actually where David starts. He says right out of the get-go, Lord, I know who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be in Exodus 34 that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abundant in mercy. You forgive sin, transgression, and iniquity. And so, Lord, that's exactly what I need you to do. He runs to the Lord for forgiveness because he knows who God is. And so we have to start there. And then David begins this entire prayer appealing to the Lord's grace. So we've seen that. And now let's look at how he actually asks for the Lord to forgive him and to heal him. Look at verse seven, jump down to verse seven from verses one and two. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, why does he say purge me with hyssop? Do you remember anything about hyssop in the old Testament? Well, the first time that pops up, is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. You remember the situation, Israel is in captivity to Egypt and God inflicts the final plague upon them. And the Lord says, this angel of death is gonna go from house to house and kill the firstborn of your children. Well, any of the the firstborn, unless you kill the Passover lamb, take its blood and use the hyssop as a branch or a brush to smear the blood over the doorposts of your house. And this is pointing us to who? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that the wrath of God passes over us. And so this hyssop as a cleansing or a purging agent so that God's wrath passes over God's people. It was also used to ceremonially cleanse people in the book of Leviticus, of leprosy and things like that. We see that all throughout the book. And so what David is saying is, Lord, I need you to clean me. I am unclean because of my sin, and so now I can't come into your presence. That was the whole point of ceremonial uncleanliness under the Old Testament. I can't come into your presence. I've got to be at a distance until I have been cleansed. And David is saying, I am impure. I'm unclean. I can't have anything to do with you, Lord, unless you cleanse me and purge me. That language there of clean is, again, going back to the Levitical law. Then he uses the language of wash, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so this is the language of washing clothes. I don't know if you've ever seen how folks in third world countries wash their clothes, but it's a workout. Usually it's the women who will go down to the river and they will scrub the clothing and try to get some sort of detergent in there. And then they slap the clothes, right? They don't have washing machines and dryers. They slap the clothes on a hard rock and they just beat on it. Have you seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? In movies or maybe National Geographic Channel, I don't know, something like that. And David's saying, Lord, that's what you need to do to me. My filth of my sin, the impurities have completely overtaken me and only you can cleanse me. Only you can wash me. And again, boys and girls, children, I want to address you because if you're anything like my kiddos who are two and five, you guys must find pleasure in taking food, mud, paint, markers, basically whatever you can get your hands on. And press them into your clothes (laughs) and press them onto the couch and the chair and the carpet and all the things that you're not supposed to. Sometimes I think you don't think about it. Sometimes I think you're just being rebellious. But you know what this is like, right? And what happens? Oh, no, now there's a stain on the couch. There's a stain on my clothes. And you may try to clean it up, right? And it makes it worse and it gets bigger. And then you got to go to mom and dad. Say, okay, here's what I did. Or maybe you lie and blame it on one of your siblings, which you shouldn't do. And mom and dad have access to what? Stain remover, a detergent, a washing machine, whatever tricks mom knows to get stains out because dad doesn't know most of those. And so you understand that only they can do this. And that's exactly what David is talking about. Sin has left a crimson stain on him, on his soul. And he can't clean it. Look at the mess he made by trying to clean up his own mess. He just made the mess bigger. And so David's saying, you are the only one who can clean it. You're the only one who can wash it and remove that stain. And that's why the Lord says through the mouth of Isaiah in Isaiah 1 verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Only the Lord can do this cleansing work by his grace. And so David pleads for his grace. He continues to plead for God's grace in verse eight. Look there, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, my conscience is like my bones. You've crushed them. You've crushed my conscience and so I'm in pain, I'm in anguish, it hurts. And so I don't experience joy and gladness of fellowship with you anymore. And so I ask that you do the healing work that you alone can do. Heal my conscience, restore it so that I experience joyful communion with you and glad worship of you. Then in verse 9, he asks again for the Lord to be gracious and forgive his sins. Look there at verse 9. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You know what one consequence David hates more than anything as a result of his sin? It's that he knows it's affected his communion with God. And so he says, Lord, you know how my sin is ever before me? I know to an even greater extent it's before your face. And so it's come between you and I. And so, Lord, I plead with you, hide your face from it. Don't interact with me. Don't withdraw from me as my sins deserve. Instead, turn your face away from my sin. Hide from it and take a pen as it were, take the inkwell and to that record of iniquities that you have that I've committed against you and blot them all out, erase them so that my communion and fellowship with you is restored. And so he's pleading for God's grace. But he doesn't just plead for God's grace and the forgiveness of his sins. Notice in verse 10 that he then asks the Lord to be gracious in restoring him. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That word create there is fascinating because that's the exact same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 1 for God creating everything out of nothing. And what David is saying by using that word is he's saying, Lord, I don't need you to give me a new heart in the sense that you've already regenerated me, but now I need you to clean my heart. And, And it's a creative act that only you can do. And so I've hardened my heart. It's become more of a heart of stone. And so I need you to create a clean heart in me. I need you to renew a steadfast, not just right, but steadfast spirit within me. I need you to put me back on the path that I've fallen off of and then keep me on that path in walking in accord with your word because I can't uphold myself, only you can. Only you can renew that and keep me until the end we get more of the same sentiment in verses 11 and 12 look there he says cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit again what's David's concern he's saying I know Saul's story I was there In 1 Samuel 15 and 16. I know that because of his sinfulness and rebellion against you. And remember Saul tries to cover it up. Tries to lessen it. And then what happens? The Lord cast him off. The Lord removed his Holy Spirit from him. So that he was no longer anointed king. And he's cast out from God's presence. And David says Lord I know that's what my sins deserve. But please do not do that to me. Instead, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's not that David lost salvation. It's that he's not experiencing the joy of that salvation. So he says, Lord, restore that to me and uphold me. Again, he says the same thing. Keep me with a steadfast, upright spirit until the very end. Keep me willing to walk in the ways of your law, O Lord, until the very end is what David says. So here's the question then, brothers and sisters, when you behold, when God shows you the vileness of your sin, where do you go? Do you plead his grace? Or do you, as we laughed about just a little bit ago, when kids try to clean up their own mess, right? They make it bigger and bigger. Is that what you try to do? You're trying to pay back an infinite debt with finite resources and you're not able to do it. You can't get in God's good standing by committing yourself to doing better next time. All that you have is to plead his grace. And oh, how he has shown his grace to us in his son. Hasn't he? By whose blood can the stain of our sin be removed so that we're washed clean? Who must be cut off from the Lord so that we're not cut off from communion with the Lord because of our sin who experienced the fullness of the wrath of God in our place so that we don't have to so that we can be restored to him who perfectly kept the law in our place so that track record of holiness is given to us counted as our own we know that the father gave the son And he came and dwelt among us in the flesh to do all of this and more. And so when you see the ugliness of your sin, do you plead Jesus? Do you plead his righteousness? Do you plead his perfect life? Do you plead his intercession at the father's right hand on your behalf? Or do you try to drum up some emotional experience? Or say, I'll do better next time. It's a fool's errand, brothers and sisters. Look to the Lord for his grace. It is the only remedy for our sins. And he graciously, lovingly, joyously gives it to us. So we've seen that the first mark of true repentance is that we confess our guilt. The second mark is that we plead God's grace. And thirdly, finally, we obey in gratitude. And we see that in verses 13 through 19. But before we jump to verse 13, I wanted to mention that I listened to a sermon by our own Ian Hamilton that was back in 2005 on Psalm 51 this past week. And I loved what he had to say about the difference between counterfeit repentance and true repentance. He said, a counterfeit repentance wants forgiveness, but it doesn't want a pure heart and fellowship with God. It wants forgiveness, so its conscience can be, I'm adding this conscience part, can be assuaged, but it also wants to go on sinning. And so this is an essential mark. Of true repentance, that we want our fellowship with God restored, and we want him to strengthen us and create a new heart in us so that we can obediently, all the days of our lives, walk in accord with his law out of gratitude and thankfulness. That's one of the ways that we can know that we're truly repentant, and we see that in David. Look at verse 13. He says, Lord, when you restore me, when you forgive me, when you graciously deal with With my guilt, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. What is David saying? Well, we know that as a mediator between God and Israel, he's a prophet, a priest, and a king, isn't David? And so he's saying, I'm going to fulfill in obedience to you my prophetic role. I will teach your people as I'm supposed to, and I will share my testimony. So that they will hear it and actually be encouraged to see a display of God's grace. Yes, they will despise the sin. They will be saddened by it. But they will also then say, if the Lord can do that in David's life, he can do that in my life. And so David's saying, I'll open my mouth and I'll teach sinners your way and they'll turn back to you. And don't you see, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what's happening here this morning. As Psalm 51 is being taught, David still speaks through the word of God and the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it to change hearts. And may he be pleased to do that even this morning. And then in the next two verses, David says what? He says, I'll obey out of gratitude, not just by teaching sinners your ways, filling that prophetic office, but I'll also obey you by worshiping you. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So what is David saying? He's saying, Lord, when you forgive me, when you deliver me, and you show yourself to be the God of my salvation, I will open my mouth and I will sing of your righteousness. You will open my lips and I will declare your praise. We don't know. Maybe David was going through the motions during this time that he was trying to cover his sin with Bathsheba. I mean, that didn't take place over a short period of time. And so he probably was with the people of God, but he was just going through the motions. He was taking the Lord's name in vain, but he says now, It'll be different. I'll sing your praise from my heart. I will sing of your deliverance and your salvation, O Lord. And this is the fruit of my repentance. It will result in grateful obedience before you. Now, in the next two verses, David goes on to say something really interesting about the Old Testament sacrifices. Because remember, One of the ways that you walked in obedience before the Lord out of gratitude and thankfulness for him saving you was you offered sacrifices to him. But listen to what David says in verses 16 and 17. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Now, wait a minute. What is David saying here? Who's the one that commanded those offerings to be offered? It wasn't some idea that some Israelite came up with. It wasn't David's idea. It was God's idea. So is David saying here that God doesn't want you to offer sacrifices? Well, yes and no. Yes, he does not want you to offer sacrifices. This takes us back to Psalm 50. If you're just doing it out of formality, right? Because I bet David was offering sacrifices during the time he was trying to cover up his sin. And yet, you know what? That was counterfeit repentance. He was just, okay, I'll do what God commands in this regard, but my heart's not really in it. Just to, you know, I can assuage my conscience a little bit and feel like I'm obeying the Lord there. I'm okay, I can keep doing this. And David's saying, no, no, no. Here's what the Lord requires of you. Yes, offer the sacrifice according to my word, says the Lord. But what must happen first is you must see your sin for what it is. And when you do, what I will work in you is a broken and contrite spirit before me. And you will see that this sacrifice that you're offering is pointing you towards the coming Messiah. Messiah. And the fact that he will lay down his life. One is coming who will experience the fullness of my wrath for all the sins of my people. But here's the thing if you don't have a broken and contrite heart, if you're not offering that sacrifice in faith, don't bring it. It's a stench to my nostrils. Don't bring your counterfeit repentance. It means nothing to me. Instead, may you have a broken and contrite spirit, rather than coming and being as the hypocrites that Jesus speaks of. In Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8, quoting Isaiah, saying, these people worship me with their lips and with their actions, but what's going on at the heart level? Their hearts are far from me. And so the heart attitude of the worshiper who comes and offers the offering is extremely important and they must come and offer it with a broken and contrite heart. And yet notice where David ends. It's interesting. In verses 18 and 19, look where he ends up. He says, "Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered." On your altar. Do you hear what David's saying? He's praying for God's people. By the way, in part because he knows that his sin hasn't just affected him, it's affected God's people, even though they didn't know about it. And brothers and sisters, we must acknowledge the same thing about our sin. No one else may know about it, but do you understand that the reality of that sin affects the community around you? It does. And David knows this. And so he prays for the people of God. Do you see how this is obedience out of gratitude? God commands us to pray for his people, to pray for his church. And so David says, Lord, in your good pleasure, do good to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. What in the world is he talking about? The walls of Jerusalem weren't down at this time. He's speaking metaphorically. He's saying, Lord, build up your people. By your gracious working, give them true, godly repentance. Give them broken, contrite hearts. And then may they come to you and offer to you burnt offerings, bulls, right sacrifices according to your word, and then you will delight in those. You see what he's saying. The right heart attitude is everything. And do you know what a part of the right heart attitude is as we come now? Because we don't offer sacrifices of animals anymore, do we? No, because our acceptable, reasonable worship, Romans chapter 12, so says Paul, in light of God's grace and mercies is what? Is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, don't misunderstand. They were to do that under the Old Testament as well. They were to offer themselves in obedience to God. But, you know, you sit back and you go, you know, no matter how broken and contrite my heart is, it's never perfectly broken and contrite. I never have purely perfect motives. So how can I know that my offerings to God, my good works, trying to obey his law, trying to read the word, trying to pray, trying to go to corporate worship, doing these things, how can I know that they're acceptable to God when they're so shot through with sin and human frailty and weakness? Brothers and sisters, Christ intercedes as our high priest and he takes those good works and he perfects them and he presents them to the Father and the Father delights in them. Do you need any greater motive than that? To be living in accord with God's law? What greater thrill than to know that living as he's created to live pleases and delights our father. And so may we see this work of true repentance that God graciously works as a fruit of true saving faith in the heart of his people. And may we repent of the false counterfeit repentances that we try to offer up. May he be gracious to show us, even as Nathan showed David, when we're doing it wrong, And that he is the only one who can do it in us. And I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 87 so succinctly summarizes everything that we just learned. So let me close with reading this to you. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Okay, it's a work of God. That's what we've seen. Whereby a sinner... Out of a true sense of his sin, so there's our confession of guilt, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, there's pleading God's mercy, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. There's our obedience in gratitude. So brothers and sisters, may we recognize this when the Lord is doing it in us and may we rejoice and be glad at this gracious gift and never take true godly repentance for granted. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you work true repentance in the hearts of your people. We confess that we often... Turn to false counterfeit repentance, and it's abhorrent in your sight. May it become abhorrent in our sight, O Lord. May we hate it as we hate any other sin. and instead, may we confess our guilt as against you, our sin is against you. Plead the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and out of gratitude, walk in obedience all our days. And Lord, may we be so amazed at this good news, that we take this gospel to those around us here in Bakersfield and ultimately to the farthest corners of the earth. Do this in us, we pray, and any who are not walking in true repentance, may you bring them to it by your grace, and may you receive all glory and honor and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.